Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast. This one is episode 26 already, and it's all about the most important mountain bikes. I'm your host, as usual, Mike Levy. I also have Casimir. Casimir, how's it going today? Oh, it's going great. Great, great. And Brian Park here to tell us what actually are factually the most important mountain bikes. <laughs> According to Brian Park. <laughs> no, I'll just, yeah, I'll just be right. The Wikipedia entry. Yeah, <laughs> and I already disagree. <laughs> you guys also just heard James. He is here with us too. He's not reading the news today, though. He's going to tell us about his three most important mountain bikes. Uh, I guess first, though, what does is, what is most important mountain bike mean, Brian? Does it have to be to, to us or to the industry or to what? Yes. Oh. No, it can mean... If if it was an easy answer, it'd be a really boring podcast. So I'm, I want to hear you guys justify why some of these things are important or not important. Um, everybody's got a different, you know, the temptation is to say that the bikes from my childhood are the most important or the bikes exactly that what I, I loved. Did. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I looked at your list. Um, or, you know, the bike that shaped me into X or whatever. And there are good reasons for that. But to me, for me, the most important means it has to have a left a lasting legacy and it has to have changed the industry in in some way and so previewing i think that james has a really good answer that i that i uh didn't think of but really good answer there so james james has a point on the board already all right, we'll get all right. <laughs> what about you casimir what is when i say most important bikes what does that have to mean to you yeah i mean my first tactic was to go with the bikes of owen which were the best ones that I thought or left an impression on me. But overall, like stepping back, I do think like they have a historical significance that helped kind of change the direction of the sport. You know, if a bike comes out and all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, that's a bike that we need to start making or riders are like gravitating towards that bike. Uh, so that's kind of where my list ended up going towards. All right. Well, they're and all I plus bikes, right, Kaz? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all plus bikes, <laughs> electric plus bikes in the future. <laughs> all right, Kaz, let's actually start off with you here. Because uh, you're the first bike on your list is also on my list. It's the Intense M1. Why did you pick that bike? I think I know why, but tell <clears throat> tell me why. Yeah, that's a bike that I just feel like, and that's the late 90s. I think it kind of helped change the direction of downhill, just shifted it towards kind of what we consider more modern downhill. You know, that's a, a purebed, purebred downhill race bike. It looked different than most things out there at the time. And lots of companies just took that bike and put their own nameplate or their own branding on it and just kind of let their racers use that bike because it was that good right a lot a lot did do you have a favorite version or a favorite racer uh well sam hill i think you got junior gold on yeah. it maybe and then yeah, Minara he did, was in on 2002 one. yeah i think minar the list is impressive like yeah. lopes maybe with lopes on one lopes was also on one yeah yeah for sure atherton's john kirkaldi yeah so it's a, yeah, a lot of people kind of either got their start or had some good results on that bike. And I think just when I think of like a late nineties, early two thousands downhill bike, that's the shape and the kind of designs like, oh yeah. John Tomac, John yeah. Tomac rode one. Yeah. <laughs> I should have put John the C26 on my list. The Yeti C26 on my list. His carbon oh, yeah, uh, with, with the... titanium lugs and the drop bars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's a significant that bike, real, but I don't a think a real it. lasting impression of yeah. the industry. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's subjective, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think with the intense too, you can still look at it today and it looks like a downhill bike. You know, if you, someone that didn't even know anything about mountain biking looks at it, it's like, oh, that looks fast. Like it just looks, I mean, it's not all about looks, but in this case, that's 
part of the reason it got on my I list. Mean, it's just, a red and yellow intense M1, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that it also pushed bike development at that time. I mean, these bike companies didn't have bikes for their racers, so they got the M1 and there you go. Maybe they learned something from it. It's yeah. interesting. There were a couple of other bikes that were sort of the white label downhill bikes at the time. What were those? Like I think like a Turner THR, a few people raced those. A Chumba, mm-hmm. a few people raced those. Shams on the Chumba? Yeah, yeah well, but he ra- raced for Chumba. But there yeah. were some people white labeling them too, so. Right, yeah. right. But yeah, the Intense in my mind is like the one that was the most white labeled downhill mm-hmm. bike ever. It was. Like so many, everyone just had the same bike, but with a different logo on it, which yeah. was kind of cool. I think well, a lot of people get... from that day from that time would still buy an m1 just for shits and giggles not even to ride kaz would you buy one uh if i had money i'd probably buy one i don't need money oh, that's, that's but, very yeah. <laughs> hypothetically speaking <laughs> yeah yeah someone was like which bike would you like from the era that'd be definitely on my short list because it'd be fun to have that just to just to have i don't i've never actually ridden one yeah I've me neither i've worked on them in the shops and stuff because the shop i worked at my buddy actually got one for his downhill race bikes. We worked on it and stuff, but I've never uh, never ridden or raced it or anything. Mm-hmm. So, Kaz, the next bike on your list is on the other end of the travel spectrum. It's the Blur 4 Cross. You also have the Transition Bottle Rocket beside it. That I don't know if yeah. that was a good bike, I Kaz. couldn't decide. No, I think they both had their mark at the same time period, and they're kind of similar intentions, sort of. Um, you know, shorter travel bikes, and this is, this is coming around 2006, kind of the end of like the max travel free ride era where we're just on these kind of big relatively goofy bikes and then people started kind of wanting to you know land on a transition once in a while like an actual transition made of dirt be crazy fucking a flat (laughs) yeah like trail building started evolving around this time especially in the pacific northwest like people figured out how to make landings Um, some of the first trails around here where you would have like a you know they're kind of more groomed or manicured not just you know scraped flat you know transition um, landing so basically these two bikes i think kind of helped usher in that era uh transition bottle rocket is like five and a half inches of travel super heavy um but people did some impressive things on it same with that blur four cross like you saw guys pushing these bikes really hard and like oh maybe i don't need this big crazy free ride bike i could go something a little shorter travel maybe so were they more proto down country bikes yeah, I would say more trail bikes, but yeah, they could be. <laughs> and if you wanted a 40-pound downcountry bike, that bottle rocket could definitely get you sorted out. <laughs> but yeah, I think that bike had a, you know, here, I think the four, or the four Cross, I'd say like California, other places had more of an impact. And then in the Pacific Northwest, that bottle rocket was everywhere and definitely had an impact on the direction the sport took. Yeah, I remember the Four Cross being a, a pretty novel bike back then, wasn't it? It was fairly low fairly relaxed it was was it their slalomy version yeah exactly it's like an blur, overbuilt basically? yeah just a little bit maybe different tubing or just a little bit so what's the construction what's the what are the spiritual successors to this or was it like an evolutionary dead end because everybody you know there's like six people who should go and buy a slope a slope style bike in 2020 and they're all sponsored so yeah i don't think yeah like, are you yeah, saying think... that i shouldn't get a slope style bike Brian? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> correct <laughs> see for me i don't think these <laughs> the went next field the... test levy's doing all the slope slope style it's been great. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it for april fools <laughs> yeah yeah i don't think these evolved into the slope style bikes i mean some did to an extent like you still have purpose-built slope style bikes out there but i think for a lot of people you're more average or just general consumer they started realizing they could have more of a pedalable bike and kind of ride. I think it trans, It ended up being more in the trail bike side of things rather than 
slope style, basically. I see it kind of like those little, like, the 5010s and the 50 mm-hmm. to 1 crew type, just woods yeah. playing around type like thing. Like a kind of jib, a jib bike that mm-hmm. you can still kind of send it if you wanted to. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where those went. Not the worst. Not the worst, Kaz. No. Yeah, it made an impact. <laughs> the last one on your list here, Kaz, I'm... I'm going to question a little bit. It's Specialized Enduro from 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. That was, was that the carbon one with the X-Frame 29er yeah. um, horse link bike? Yeah, that was why? the first 29er Enduro. Why, why, why do you have that on your list, Kaz? Because that's what helped usher in our current state of, like, 29ers are the most common bike right now, it seems like, for, you know, in that, in that realm. Um, at that time, it was still 27.5. Specialized held off a long time of even doing 27.5. They actually had their 29er out before their 27.5 inch bikes just because they're like people teased them and hassled them and didn't know what was going on, but they were actually ahead of the curve there. And then they eventually gave into market pressure, but now they're probably like, see, we were right all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so this bike had modern geometry. It's, you know, if you look at it now, it does look a little dated, but at that time it was pretty radical um, and it rode really well. So 60, 67 degree head angle. Uh-huh. Like yeah, that, with a 36 yeah. i think on the front and they managed to keep and the chain stays were pretty short and you know things that geometry trends have changed since then but that bike did make a lot of people realize the feasibility of a longer travel 29er it was like that was the future was that an all mountain bike kaz um it was an enduro bike it said right on it an enduro <laughs> or touche <laughs> <laughs> i remember um steve jones uh did a dirt feature on this bike he took it to a british national downhill series um and pissed a lot of people off by proving that two niners could tackle that kind of terrain and and yeah this was the bike that 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 did it yeah it's kind of funny because 2013 doesn't seem that long ago at least in my mind or 2013 2014 but it was really, only a year on, or two ago that's right <laughs> yeah a lot has changed in the last six years and so um yeah this has kind of helped usher that in and then you know a year or two after that we started the, the downhill 20 hour downhill bikes became more common and yeah, yeah. i think this bike I- definitely changed things that's a good one. It's your best answer for sure. Yeah, I was doubting it, but you've made valid points. <laughs> I permit it to be on your list. Oh, thanks. I appreciate <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> All right, let's like go this, over Brian. This... She's got a stump jumper and amp, a Santa Cruz Nomad. Okay. All right, yeah, good. Good. <laughs> See you guys. <laughs> All right, Brian, you have probably the mountain bike on your list that we all should have put on our list. Right at the top, you got the 81 stump jumper. Yeah, there were lots of other early mountain bikes that were forward-thinking and that were as much a mountain bike as the, the first mountain bike and as the stump jumper. You know, there's it's always a bit of an argument about what's the first mountain bike, etc. But history is written by the victors, and uh, 1981 stump jumper was the first production mountain bike that really made an impact. And I think every marketing mountain bike marketing dork for the last 30, what is it, 30-something years has been chasing that it's not just a new bike it's a whole new sport kind of marketing hype um and without the success of that bike i don't i think the sport would look quite different that's a good one it's kind of a cop-out though it's kind of like saying the model a is the most important car of all because it's the first yeah (laughs) yeah i'll give it to you though (laughs) i mean have you ever it was important i have not ridden an 81 stump jumper no i've ridden one of the old vintage like early 90s ones but Mm-hmm. yeah i've ridden old just around like yeah. test riding when someone brings it in doesn't have any idea what they have at the shop totally. like i'm gonna go see what this can do <laughs> i i kind of want to buy an a, some sort of like mid 80s stump jumper 
or maybe, I don't know, something cool and, and just have it as an around town bike. Maybe put one of those, um, like the low trail 20, 20 inch front wheel cargo, uh, forks on it. Just bash around town. Can't you just buy a gravel bike? That's the same, isn't it? As an 80s yeah. mountain bike, like same thing. Brian's I mean, so I, deep down the hipster route, like in a few years, it's going to be ridiculous. <laughs> I, can just I will say that my current gravel bike is probably more capable than a 1981 stump jumper. There you go. You make a video. It could be your head to head gravel no, bike. Be, uh, we'll make we'll make Levy do it if he says pinkers again. I'm not going to say it. I don't want to do that video. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brian, next on your list, we're going to move forward, but not all that far. We'll go from 81 with that stump jumper to 1993 with the Amp B2. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the first production four bar link. Um, I hate but- how you have the right answers here for all your bikes. Like you have the answers that make the most sense. Like this bike is important because of this reason. And I'm like, God damn it. That's the reason. <laughs> It's a good reason. <laughs> it uh, is. <laughs> but this is this is all our, all credit to RC because he wrote that. Now that was a bike about it. Um, article about it a few years back. Is that last year? I don't know. Um, and yeah, horse leaner. He had a. He I think they in that article he said 1985. He built the first prototype uh, four bar suspension back end. Um, but it wasn't until until the early 90s that this bike came into production and it's what we know kind of know today as that fsr design or horse link design rear suspension uh i'm not smart enough to explain how the braking and chain tension and suspension stuff works um but it it did it was licensed by literally everyone um and it made you know in an era where a lot of non-linkage driven single pivot bikes were out there um, and not not done very well. It was easier to make the the horse link design bikes work well, um, be fairly active, and not go crazy under braking. And um, yeah, even you know, thirty five years after its original prototype, it's still it's still one of the predominant. Well, I'd say it is the predominant suspension design. How many of those amp pencil like chain stays do you think are still in one piece today that's a good question (laughs) precisely zero (laughs) they were beautiful though but so slender yeah everything about those bikes they were chrome those little chrome tubes Mm -hmm. but i said the linkage work levy so that was the right Right. rally yeah Yeah, i think we have to give we have to give uh horst a uh a demerit for that linkage fork on the front that did not go anywhere, but he was one of the catalysts for good disc brakes as well. So we can forgive him the bad linkage fork. Have you ever ridden one of these bikes, Brian? Uh, yeah, uh, not a 93 one, but I, I've ridden an amp a little later. Did it have one of the linkage forks on it? The folding forks? I don't think so. No, I would love to try one of those. Yeah, me too. I've never ridden one. I think we, when, when I was worked at Rocky Mountain, I think we had one up in the, uh, up in the, because they did one where they licensed the back end, the amp back end, and welded it to a Rocky Mountain. And I forget. It might have been the ones where they had a they had like a Bradbury Manitou on the back, just with the fork, <laughs> like where your chain or your seat stays was was the least sensor. clever way to do full suspension. Yeah. I'll just put a fork on the back. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I, you know how people always say like they always reference the fork as the front fork? Front fork. Yeah, rear fork. Then they would it would make sense when people say front fork. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> the next one on your list Brian is an entirely different animal. 2005 Santa Cruz Nomad, the first Nomad. 
Why why that bike? Did you ride one of those? Did you have one? Why is it important? I, I rode one. I didn't have one. No. Um, I might have fallen into the trap of putting something on there that I wanted from the time, from the era. Um, this is, you know, this was early in my mountain biking. Like, I could actually afford a bike and really wanted something. I definitely wanted an early Nomad. Uh, to me, yeah, it's a, it's a debatable one. The other two, I think, are hard to argue with but this one there's a lot of good or interesting bikes in the in the era i just i put it on because it was the it was important for santa cruz um it was an alloy 165 mil bike it was fairly slack for the time at 67 degree 67 degree head tube angle to me it's important because it kind of took the company past their sort of single pivot super eight days rest in peace super eight um but you know it, it wasn't loading docks with the superheroes anymore and it proved the the value of their investment into vpp design for the big bikes and yeah compared to a lot of bikes that we talk about from the mid 2000s it's less stupid if you if you look at those bikes today you go back and look at those mid 2000s bikes there's a lot of them it yes, just depends if it has a hammerschmidt on it or not it's still stupid if it has a hammerschmidt on it still <laughs> disagree hard disagree hammerschmidt's coming back <laughs> or a schlump yeah but yeah no the 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 nomad that it looks pretty regular i think well it looks, looks hideous in, now but at well, the yeah. time i thought it looked good like yeah. that's that silver swoopy aluminum mm-hmm. one like when it came out, I remember thinking, oh, that looks good. But now when I look at it, it makes me throw up in my mouth a little bit. Like, well, but not to the good. same degree that like a Rocky Mountain Flatline or something does. Like, oh, Flatlines look great, I think. No, yeah, I don't remember the 2008 like Flatline? Yeah, it, has it had like triangles in the down tube. It yeah, was, it, was a, it was a built-in fender. I mean, that was an ugly bike. There's I no, liked it. It also no, weighed 83 pounds. Yeah, there's no <laughs> defending that. It did not leave the ground. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not pretty either. But yeah, there was a lot of swooping going on, like swoopy two was yeah, a thing in, around that time. So, yeah. but uh, but yeah, I agree. It, well, it did help. It kind of helped usher in that. That was like an all mountain bike. I think they might have called it all mountain back then. No, oh, maybe. Yeah. Brian, what's with this Balfa two step on your? Oh, I just too? I was I was it was in my notes. I was kind of debating. I think that the two step and BB seven were important bikes. I don't know. I may, like I maybe thought about putting that instead of the Nomad. I don't think just anybody had them in like most places though like if you were in yeah. quebec you didn't have yeah. they're well, very they, canadian we didn't see them did in the u.s at all a, but they did have an impact maybe not maybe they didn't have an impact but they i think they were ahead of their time i did ride one a bb7 for a bit and i do think that you know in hindsight there's obviously a lot of merit to that high single pivot design i'm gonna give you half marks for that one yeah okay, not as much <laughs> let's go on to james James, you've got some pretty wild bikes on your list. The Nikolai Ion 16. Yes, yeah, specifically Chris Porter's, I think it's important to say. Um, so Chris Porter, I'm sure most of you know the name. He was um, head of the UK Fox Distro at the time, Mojo. Um, he was really famous for tinkering with shocks. He did a lot of custom tuning and things like that. And he um, commissioned Nikolai to make him this bike, the Ion 16, uh, with custom geometry, everything like that. Um, and alongside Mondraker, um, pushed this longer, lower slacker thing. So he didn't do it with forward geometry necessarily, but it was a just a big bike generally. Um, I say it's Chris's bike, but it was borrowed by most of the UK mag editors at the time. And they quickly 
kind of became converted to like preaching the gospel of Porter, uh, which they pushed hard in their reviews over the next few years. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I think the industry went that way longer, lower slacker. Um, so to what get year into, was this? What year was this? Uh, it's like 2014, 2013, around then. So a little bit after Mondraker, I think. Um, so yeah, back then, um, it's still pretty radical now. I'd say 63 degree head tube angle, uh, 520 millimeters. That's in the reach. past now. <laughs> it's a Grim Diller uh, reference. <laughs> uh, Chris is six foot one, so 520 reach. That's I'd say that's still quite big. Wheelbase at 1323 millimeters, um, and 160 millimeter travel, 27.5 inch uh, wheels. Um, so that bike kind of formed the basis for future Nikolai bikes. Um, someone with access to Nikolai's order book told me that a lot of their customers in that period came from big brands. I think he was insinuating that they wanted to try this new geometry and, um, yeah, it went on to influence their designs. And now, I mean, look at bikes now, they're, they're not a million miles away from what Chris was doing six, seven years ago. Yeah. I know a couple of brands that, that went out and bought Nikolai's, um, in that time. Um, did they offer something closer to Nikolai after that, Brian? Uh, one of them. One of them, yeah. One of them is a bike that you really like. No, maybe. I bet. Yeah. I'll tell you after. <laughs> I think that year was the first year I met Chris Porter. I was doing the Trans-Provence. And like, we had, between the different days, you would load up the shuttle vehicles and drive to the next stage. And you had to put your bike in the bike rack. And his bike was so long, it, like, it didn't really fit in the rack. And he caused such an issue. <laughs> it was really funny. And at that time, I thought he was a little nutty, but... Did you try it at the time? No, I didn't get to try his bike because we were racing, so we had our own things. But his bike was, even then, even now, it's still a really long bike. But I remember being like, who is this guy? So that was my first encounter with him. Yeah, I beat him, but, you know. On a normal bike. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just shade. (laughs) Imagine how fast you would have been on his bike. I know, I would have been fast. Well, there's some weird trails there, but either way. What about those corners, though, Kaz? There's some Euro Uh, corners. There were. I was on a Nomad at the time. I like when Kaz throws shade. He doesn't do that often, but when he does, it's fucking good. No, Chris is a good rider. <laughs> you just want to point that out, that you beat him, but he's a good rider, so you're better. Um, so James, you head off in a completely different direction after that with YT's Sponsoree. What the hell is that? Yeah, maybe the least well-known of YT's bikes. Probably the cheapest bike on this list, if I had to make a guess. Least expensive is what you want to say. Least expensive. Not cheapest. <laughs> in this um, case both actually yeah it's okay cheap. um so this was yt's first bike um i don't think they were the first brand to do like direct sales i think canyon had their first version of the talk out the year before um but yt was definitely the first mountain bike only brand doing direct sales um so the story goes that marcus uh flossman who's the founder of yt he was down at some dirt jumps and he saw some kids shredding on some crappy supermarket bikes um, he asked them why they didn't have proper bikes and they said they couldn't afford them. Um, I think, you know, a, a kind of a dirt jump build around that time would be €1,000 plus. Um, so he went to Taiwan and produced 150 of these sponsor E-frames and was able to sell them at 499 um for a complete bike. Um, he didn't really have a cat in hell's chance of getting them into a shop, um, but instead he charmed his way into a magazine group test he um, ended up winning the value for money um, prize in that group test. And then they sold out in 10 days on his website. Um, so it's kind of nothing 
exceptional about this bike um, necessarily, but YT kept plowing that furrow of direct sales. There was quite a bit of animosity from the industry, um, but now, you know, it's a really well-established way for riders to get their bikes. Even big brands like Trek have a sort of hybrid direct sales model in what they do. And um, if you maybe want a, a kind of a more cost-effective way to get a, a, a decent spec bike, that seems to be the way to go for a lot of riders now. And, and that was the bike that started it all. Absolute mic drop. <laughs> I got nothing there. Yeah, that's a good, it's <laughs> such a good answer. Yeah. yeah. I like that it's one you wouldn't have thought of off the top of your head, but then when you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, fine, James. But the <laughs> last bike on your list is a Scott Spark. Tell me why that's the most important bike, or one of them anyway. Um, yeah, I guess like when I was getting into mountain biking in the mid noughties, I just couldn't imagine why anyone would be interested in cross country. You know, I watched the Freecaster downhill and it was wild and loose. And um, then the next day, you just kind of watch two hours of roadies hacking around the grass field on hardtails. And it, I just couldn't see the appeal. It almost looked like a different sport to me. Um, and then, you know, it wasn't the first full suspension cross country bike, but under Nino Scherter, it's definitely been the most successful. Um, and I think he proved that not only could this full suspension cross country bike be uh, faster on the downhills where he put a load of time to people but he was able to thrash them on the uphills as well um and yeah i think you know really kind of popularized full suspension um as part of cross country with full suspension bikes you know course builders can build more gnarly courses and you know we get to where we're at today where you know riders have dropper posts and wide tires and most of them are on full suspension bikes on courses that resemble mountain bike trails you know like some of the stuff Real they ride now, it's, it's, it's intimidating. It's scary stuff, right? Um, and, you know, this is Nino and Scott together, I guess. But that was the bike that um, made that sport or that discipline of the sport what it is today. It's a good pick. Yeah. I don't know. You're leaving us speechless with all these picks, I think. I think, we, got a, I think we have to shout out Kabush was an early proponent of, uh, of full suspension bikes in XC. What bike was he on at that time? I forget. Yeah, see, I think the Scott, the Spark definitely sticks out in my mind as like a yeah. bike. Like you think of like XC turning a little bit of a corner. I, mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, that bike is really fun too. It's it's like an XC bike you can hop on. Like oh, I'm, I can go fast easily. Man, I think if we tally up the points, <laughs> James might win on points here. I'll take that. Yeah, well, I still leave you to go. I mean, that's not. Yeah, no, we, know his, we know his answers. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Levy, you started with the uh, the Kona Process One One One. Yeah, I think, I mean, that one to me, that was in 2013 when that came out. It definitely wasn't the first short travel bike. There was obviously, like Kaz pointed out, the Four Cross and the Bottle Rocket. And there's plenty before that, too. Um, I always liked that short travel Turner slalom bike. Do you guys remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyways, the 111, to me, it was sort of like this sort of step change in their acceptance of short travel. And a lot of that had to do with the geometry that made it so capable. It went from being like this weird thing to this super capable thing, regardless of short travel. So to me, the 111 was sort of like the first time that people separated travel from capabilities, sort of. I mean, this one, I was making fun of it before, but this one kind of is a proto downcountry bike. For sure. Yeah. It was. So I rode a large in 2013 and had a 460 millimeter reach. I mean, I think I just tested a large Cannondale downcountry bike with a 465 millimeter reach, maybe. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and this had a 68 degree head angle, so definitely a bit steeper, and 35 millimeters of bottom, dra- bottom bracket drop as well, too. So definitely out there back then, less so now, but I mean, still, like, there's bikes that, yeah. yeah. I also think it's one of the first bikes to not take a front derailleur, if I'm correct, I think. Ah, uh, yeah, I remember because they wanted to get the chain stays short. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember that that bike definitely influenced a lot of other designs. It was strange that it disappeared so quickly from the lineup, but it definitely made an impact on the industry. Yeah, I don't I don't think people like as much of um as much of a important bike as it was, I think. I still think it was people looked at it and they saw 111 millimeters of travel and they're like, mm, maybe not, you know, there's people still thinking 150s, but Anybody who got one wrote it and was impressed. That's for sure. I wish the seat tube was a bit longer on it, though. It had a seat tube on a large that was too short back in 2013. Well, but couldn't you just... Well, I guess you could take a modern dropper and put it in. Yeah, a modern one. It didn't, yeah. didn't do the thing. Yeah, because now it's normal. Like the seat tube length back then was 450, and that's a large, and that's exactly what they are now. Like, yeah, exactly. That's but almost the, longer than some, but at the but time... But the dropper seat tubes, or the dropper seat posts weren't long enough. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. now it would be perfect. Like the geometry is aged pretty well on that bike. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? Angle seem steep, but everything you could else. take you could get one of those bikes today and make it pretty reasonable with not mm-hmm. very much effort. Yeah, yeah, totally. So would you guys agree? Do I get points for this? Yeah, it belongs on the list. I give you points totally. for it. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. We're off to a good start. What's what next? about the uh, the next one? The uh, Rocky Mountain RM9. I mean, it's a legendary bike. I'm looking at Casper <laughs> smiling <Christ>. here. <laughs> I mean, I own an RM7, so I'm not going to disagree with this one, but explain how it's significant. I don't no, know. No, I'm going to disagree. Like, Jesus. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm telling you why I don't, but I know I should. So I just want to hear his reasoning. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just a crazy freaking bike. It was back in 1999. It looks like a fucking motorbike. Look at it. It had nine inches of travel. It came with the Monster T in 2099. Um, the frame and fork weighed like 19 pounds. Claimed weight. Frame and, and fork, nine inches, 19 okay. pounds. And the nine inches of travel is in all directions. That rear wheel can go wherever you want it to because of the thrust link. Especially once your bushings wear out, it can yeah. go. It can do <laughs> when you're leaned things. over, it lets the back end track the ground more. Mm-hmm. Suppleness. That was, that was in their marketing copy. Yeah. Yeah. And some <laughs> no, of my favorite was, bikes have been it was, flexi. I'll find no, it for you. That yeah. it was flexi? Yeah. Wow. I'll find it. Yeah. Oh After this God. call, I don't have time to, I can't do two things at once. But yeah, they, they marketed some special things at that back end. Oh my God. It also I love had my arm sim. Easton Rad DH tubing and that green flame paint job. Yeah. And I remember Zapata Espinosa wrote a review of this thing in Mountain Bike Magazine. It was probably in 99 or maybe 2000 or something. And I read it countless times. It was amazing. I was just blown away by how it would... Keep in mind, everybody else was on like five-inch travel things, six-inch travel things. And even Rocky Mountain's previous bike, their previous downhill bike, the DH Race, it looked like a, an element. It just like, you know, a little rocker arm and a little coil shock underneath the top tube. And then this fucking monster... Half marks. I'll take it. Yeah. No, you're not getting. You're not getting half marks for this. You no You disagree? Like yeah. Okay. Like I have to preface this. I work for Rocky Mountain. I, uh, you know, I used that paint job on a on a bike for Wade for his twentieth year with Rocky Mountain and stuff. Like, obviously, it's a cool bike. And I think even one of my first times, I I just got my driver's license. I drove to Victoria and I was riding bikes at the dump 
the Heartland dump in Victoria and I saw somebody on an RM6 and I'd never seen one in real life, mm-hmm. just in magazines. I remember being like, holy shit, that guy's got an RM, it's either a six or seven or nine, I don't know, one of the RM series and being like, oh my God. But no, that was not, a, it wasn't a good bike. It had no lasting legacy. It, yeah, like maybe the RMX because they didn't all fall apart. But, but all no. the bearings just broke and fell out. But yeah, but it yeah. looked cool. And Wade rode it. Screw yeah. you guys. <laughs> yeah, he jumped over the Marzocchi yeah. truck. Was Which, he on an RM9 for that Moreno Valley Road Gap, or was it an RMX? Might have been. I don't even I think care. He was I don't an know. On an RMX. I'm all sure. of the RMs, they're beautiful. <laughs> it also. So the bit of backstory here is that uh, I used to ride with this guy in Chilliwack all the time, Jay, who had an RM6 with a Super T, and this guy would grease everything like butter like he was didn't it was gonna fall apart (laughs) (laughs) he was so smooth in my mind you know you don't know any better in your mind you're like oh that bike you know it's just the combination and yeah anyways plus it took like an 800 pound spring or a 900 pound spring so leverage ratios on those are crazy (laughs) you had to have like when i was like 140 pounds on my rm7 i'm pretty sure like an 800 pound spring they were a little whack with like a two inch stroke or something maybe a two Uh and a quarter inch stroke yeah Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a Titec knock scope on mine because I went free riding, pedaled it around all the time. Did you break a whole bunch of them, Cass? Uh, yeah. They they would all break at the forward shock mount. Like just oh. a crack. It wouldn't be. It sounds like you needed a thousand pound coil spring. <laughs> yeah. <on there>. <laughs> <laughs> I had a strong, bigger strong. Yeah. There's a lot of stair hooks to flat, too. So that could have influenced it. Right. Yeah. I like your pick. It, it didn't change the sport, but I do have fond memories of that time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not the right answer like Brian yeah. over there, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, what's your final bike? Oh, yeah. Well, it's the Intense M Series, of course. I mean, that one is obvious, but specifically uh, that first Max Strut one with five inches of travel back in 95. So it's when you think of the M bikes, the M one, you think of the you think of like the one that Casimir talked about with the four bar and Palmer and all those guys racing it. But that Max Strut one with the super short front end and it's yellow with the red rear end, I just yeah, I don't know. I love it. I think it's beautiful. It's got a big titanium spring on there. And then like Kaz pointed out as well too, I mean that that morphed into the rest of the M series bikes that were ridden by whole host of people are we gonna actually give levy two at least two points for this it's not it's a good answer yeah i think you can i mean we're all pretty intelligent we know what what made a difference yeah everything changed yeah. <laughs> in 2003 when it was the m3 and it used the vpp link it's like whatever i don't care anymore who cares <laughs> but back when it was that four bar bike that's the one mm-hmm. and yeah. the max drop bike mm-hmm so, and we shouldn't talk about this, but it is interesting how, like, you can track intents and the moment they signed on to VPP with with um, Santa Cruz, they were kind of neck and neck. And it's interesting to see how they kind of diverged at that point. So I would definitely argue don't it's put down, that for, down mm-hmm. from down to like marketing and like stupid intents was stuck with like we're gonna weld bikes. Yeah, in yeah. America. And still do like '90s paint jobs too, just like hideous colors and weird yeah. things. And We're being well, but I also so think bad. I also think it's it's partially because of bikes like that Nomad in in '05. Mm-hmm. Like that's yeah. they took it, yeah, and made that design work for those bikes. Yeah, I think the Syndicate was the best. Like the Syndicate was the smartest marketing thing Rob could have ever done. So uh, obviously, I was never lucky enough to own an M1. I would still love to have one if anybody wants to send me one but 
But I did own a Sears dual tracker that was probably my most important bike to me, specifically just because it introduced me to mountain biking. I mean, I spent probably two years not even on trail. Just I would just push it up the gravel road and come back down the gravel road. Uh, sometimes not staying on the road. And that, I mean, that introduced me to the sport, regardless of the dual track fork being locked out and the cones constantly being loose and the pulley wheels falling off of the derailleur. <laughs> Kaz, what's the, to you, what's the most important bike you've owned? It's a hard one. I mean, I think that my first real mountain bike, like I did have a, a bike similar to your Seals bike, Sears bikes, or I had like a diving back that I bent the frame and it fell apart. And, but that was my first mountain bike. But I kind of knew that wasn't, it got me into the sport, but it wasn't helping me out in the sport. So then after that, I saved up all my paper route money and then I bought a spooky June bug. Oh, and that bike was like the bike that was like, Oh, like I'm a racer now I'm East coast. And I put a, I think I put a Z2 on it cause I had a Sid and it was too flexy for my 130 pounds probably at the time. Yeah. But yeah, that bike's still a fond memories. There's like pistachio green and, and I just liked the whole, yeah, that whole East coast XC racing scene. So so your first real mountain bike first real mountain bike like had v brakes and oh, it said it had a grip shift i think it had the x-ray grip shift maybe at that Ooh, time sick so, yeah it was pretty good i spent all my money on it so yeah it was good james what about you what's your most important most important mountain bike that you've owned yeah mine's pretty similar to be honest my first proper mountain bike was a like a specialized rock hopper um and you just like always chasing that feeling of like the first time you hit a double or like the first time you get a corner good on like your first mountain bike i'm still waiting <laughs> <laughs> and you know like this it was like a you know a 500 quid hardtail um but it lasted me for years i took it to the alps i was riding on it every weekend and like when something would fall off i'd spend hours you know trolling forums trying to find like the right part to fit it and like that's how i learned to like do mechanicing and everything like that and it was just like i think like now i'd have a horrible time on it but that was like my way into the sport and it taught me so much and um yeah then it got nicked so <laughs> sad times <laughs> brian your most important bike that you've owned i think it's probably the sx trail i was a really was a really good bike and it was my gateway drug to pedaling because before that, I had a lot of really, I had a really bad track record of really dumb bikes. I had a Brody 8-Ball, I had a Pigeon oh, Scream. I have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had some, I had, some, I had a, I had an On One Gimp. And at some point, I think I told the story, I had a, I put dual crown forks on it. It was like, it was not, I did not have a good track record. And the SX Trail, I, I'm trying to remember what year I bought it, but that was my sort of gateway drug into like, oh, mountain biking is a thing that where you pedal and then you go down the thing you pedaled and uh, it's not just a shuttle thing it's not just a doing a wheelie drop off of a container thing it yeah so to me that was an important bike in the for me and I, I think that that bike I'd have to go and look I don't know if this is a defensible statement but I think it was a pretty good bike was that mm -hmm. the one yeah. with the progressive what? fifth element shock no, it had a it had a fox shock on it. Um, it was sort of that weird brown color they did for a while, sort of the goldy mm -hmm. brown. Kaz, do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know what year it was, but yeah, that was a good bike. I'd say yeah. I'd still say it was a good bike. Mm -hmm. I would like yeah, to know one. where all these old bikes are. Like, where's the Super Eight right now? All those old things. I wanted, you know? I wanted a Super Eight so bad. 
All right, everybody, those are our picks for the most important mountain bikes. Uh, tell us, are we out to lunch because we didn't include the Red Alp on our list? Um, am I completely wrong with the RM9? How yes. wrong is Brian, actually? <laughs> Let us know in the comments, and we're going to see you next week. <laughs>